All right, well, we are coming to the end. Some of you are going to, under your breath, say finally, to, of our discussion of the New Testament, our overview of all of the New Testament books. We are today going to look at what are known as the pastoral epistles. Uh, they are First and Second Timothy and Titus. They are almost always lumped together. If you get a commentary or a Bible study, or if you study them formally in any sort of academic setting, typically we learn about these books all together because they are, they share a common purpose. They are written um, or told by Paul, probably in his latter days. He probably doesn't know that he's going to Rome to be beheaded, but he is definitely in the later years of his ministry. And he has two primary disciples to whom he pens these letters to Timothy and then to Titus. And so one of the questions we're going to ask first is, who are these men? Um, Some of you probably know the name Timothy, and you may know Titus because it's the name of a book in your Bible. Uh, But let's just ask the question, who is Timothy? Yeah. Yeah. Timothy is one of the younger men who traveled along with Paul. He was one of Paul's disciples. Um, He was mentored by Paul. Paul refers to him as my son in the faith a number of times. Um, and if we had to pick one person who was going to sort of take the reins from Paul as he met the end of his life, it probably would have been Timothy. Uh, and we have two letters that Paul has penned to him, um, sort of indicating that that's probably the case. Titus, do we know who Titus is? This one's a little bit more difficult, right? We don't know quite as much about Titus. Um, Titus is another one of his disciples uh, in the letter to to Titus in the opening, we read that Paul has sent him and left him in Crete. You, you ever heard someone refer to someone as a Cretan? What does that mean? Rough, barbaric. It is not a term of endearment. It's definitely derogatory. Um, they were largely, and we, we read in the letter, as Paul refers to them, sort of dishonest, uh, not the, the best people in the world. That, that term comes from the people who live at Crete. So this is the place that Titus, yes. That's fascinating. Okay, so Cretans had a, actually a biological, physiological thyroid problem that caused some of this. Um, that's fascinating. That I didn't know, so thanks for sharing that, Kathy. Um, it, suffice to say, they're, they are, they're not the cream of the crop when it comes to the church or the cities in which Paul has planted churches, and it was there that T- Titus was left in order to organize the church. Um, Timothy, often we think of Timothy sort of popularly as the timid son of Paul, we read Paul encouraging him a number of times uh, to, to hold strong to the faith. Uh, Paul tells him not to let his youth be looked down upon, but to be strong and stand up. And so a lot of times people walk away from the text thinking that Timothy is somehow this sort of timid uh, guy who, who needs to be sort of coddled and pampered and, and brought into his fullness. But if you actually pay attention to what Timothy's roles were, with Paul, you find out very quickly that this is not the case at all. Uh, that Timothy was actually sent into the worst of worst places 
when things got tough and Paul had to bail, it was Timothy that got left behind in the midst of all the chaos to teach and to organize the church. Um, when in his third journey, uh, Paul was uh, spending time in Ephesus, and we think he spent as much as three years in Ephesus sort of working with that church, he sent Timothy to Corinth. And if you remember from our discussion about Corinth, Corinth is a church not like Thessalonica, which was uh, sort of doing well and loving each other and sort of the prime example, the, sort of the jewel in Paul's crown when it comes to churches. Corinth had lots of trouble, lots of problems. And those two letters are just a laundry list of issues, theological, cultural, interpersonal, uh, that the, that church was having that Paul was trying to address. But it was Timothy who carries that letter and spends time that, that Paul sent to that church in order to get them back on track. And so Timothy was sort of thrust into the midst of all the problem Earlier on, when they all went to uh, the town of Berea in Acts, we read that there was quite a bit of uh, problems. There was a, a bit of a riot. Uh, Paul and the traveling commandants bail, and they leave because they don't want to get hurt. Uh, but Paul leaves Timothy behind. He says, you, you stay behind. You, you deal with this. Um, and as we come to these two letters that are written to Timothy, we find that Timothy is in Ephesus, We've talked about um, Timothy and the culture of Ephesus before when we talked about the instructions regarding women and the culture of uh, Ephesus and the cult of Artemis. If you don't, if that doesn't sound familiar to you, if you don't know that, I would recommend you go back and listen to that week. We're not going to rehash that. Um, but suffice to say, Ephesus is another city in which the church is not typically welcome and was not received very well. In fact, in Acts, we read that when Paul and his traveling companions, we assume Timothy was probably among them, first came to uh, Ephesus, a riot broke out, and it was such a large riot that they had to move it to the amphitheater. Paul wasn't actually present there. He was told about it. He tried to get there, but uh, he was stopped by some others because it was too dangerous. Um, it, it was apparent that lives were going to end this day, but in the end, there was somebody who stood up and sort of spoke in defense of the, dis the disciples, those with the traveling commands of Paul, and they literally were snuck out under the dark of night and escaped with their lives. So this is Ephesus, and this is now the place where Timothy has been sent. And Timothy is working as Paul writes this letter. So Timothy is, rather than sort of the timid one, the one, he's the problem solver. He's, he's sort of the, I, I say the heavy, but not really like he's authority, but he's the one who Paul trusted to send into the most problematic spots, knowing that he would do the work of God, that he would carry forward the message of Paul, that he had been taught and schooled and discipled by Paul, and Paul trusted like no other to handle the problems that are arising in the churches that Paul has founded. So that's who Timothy is. Like I said, Titus, we don't have nearly that much information about. Um, we do know, as uh, Paul mentions in his letter to Titus, that he was in Crete. And we mentioned that culture and that situation. So it was another tough situation, but Titus is left, as we read, to organize the church, appoint elders. He's responsible for the organization and the life of the church in Crete. These letters um, are different in as much as the letters that we've looked at up to this point are largely Paul as theologian, Paul as pastor, Paul as the founder of these churches, teaching them how to live. And these letters, because of who they're written to, Timothy and Titus, we see Paul as a mentor. As my mom, Pam, said earlier, um, they are his mentees. Are, these are two of the, the men that he mentored and presumably, because we have these letters still recorded, they are the ones who he is getting ready and preparing to hand off his ministry to. 
who, as he goes to his demise in Rome, he, he thinks and is planning to go on into Spain. Um, but we know that that doesn't happen or likely did not happen. But these are the two men who he's leaving behind to care for and guide and instruct the churches in what he calls the faith. Okay, I'm going to talk about that at length today. Um, but th- these are letters of a mentor to the mentee about how to go forward in the life of the church, in the life of the gospel, in the way of Jesus. Okay? In these letters, there are two themes that sort of come to the top, and they can get lost because a lot of these two letters are logistical. So they deal with household rules, they deal with organization of the church, they deal with who, who uh, is qualified to be a deacon or an elder or a bishop or you know, whatever terms we want to use. Um, he uses deacon and elder. But um, so, 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 so the thrust or the theological heart of the letters can get lost because we're reading all of these instructions, which are very practical. But if we want to stand back and look at what are sort of the, the points that Paul is making, one of them is in regards to salvation. And one of the unfortunate realities of particularly modern and Western Christianity is that often the theology of Paul gets pitted against the theology of James, as an example, um, and in some ways John. The latter, James and, or John, would, would tell us, and we saw as we read those, James' letter, for example, that faith and works work together. That uh, James says, you know, show me your faith without your works, and and he goes on to say that faith without works, in fact, is dead. That that's not, no faith at all. And so there's this working together of faith and works. And in the first 1,500 years of the church, those were thought to work together and complete one another. Um, with the Protestant Reformation, which, again, we're going we're gonna to hit on this a little bit today, a little bit of history today coming. Um, but there was sort of a rejection of the works righteousness because it had gotten too heavy and there was too much emphasis put on what you do. And we, we were losing the role of faith in salvation. And there's sort of a rejection of works, righteousness. It's only faith. Solo fide is the sort of mantra of Reformed and Protestant theology, um, faith alone. And uh, these, all of a sudden, these two theologies and ideas get pitted against each other. So you have James over here, which is saying they work together. And Paul was being read to say, no, works don't matter at all. It's all, all faith. And what we see in these two letters that are written to Timothy and Titus is Paul saying very clearly, no, what you do actually matters. That it is certainly your faith that is salvific. You are saved by your faith in Jesus. You are saved by the faith of Jesus. But that salvation necessarily works it out in obedience. It works itself out in a way of life. In the same way that James had said, if your faith without works, if you have faith with no works, you have no good faith at all. Paul agrees. And that's part of what he's instructing Timothy and Titus to realize and recognize is why it matters who you put in leadership. It's why it matters how you treat one another, how you conduct yourself in your household, how the church interacts with each other, how women and men get along, um, unlike the world outside, but more like Jesus. All of that matters because for Paul, salvation, just like for James, necessitates what he would term and refers to as obedience. So salvation leads to obedience, and this is the salvific, the salvation plan of God. That God, as we said last week, indwells you with the Holy Spirit, at times fills you with the Holy Spirit, so that you can live into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point, and Paul agrees with that. And so 
If you've ever heard somebody try to pit Paul against James, you can just shake your head and walk away from that conversation because you don't need to be talking about that. In fact, that's one of Paul's instructions to Timothy is don't, don't engage in these nonsense conversations. Don't, like, that's ridiculous. That's just utterly ridiculous. Like, it's not even worth having that conversation. And so he says, don't worry about vain genealogies and theological debates and discussions like that. Let's just, let's just go on about your business. Focus on what matters. And it is that second one, which is the, uh, the crux of what we're going to talk about today, but it's also the second theme, and as the, the theme of faith. And in Greek, the word is pistis, and Paul uses it in a number of different ways. The two primary ways are trust and belief. So you have faith in Jesus, you have faith in God, and so it is, is your belief, your right belief in the truth of God. Um, but he also uses it as a noun, as the faith. And in these two letters, it plays heavily in that respect because it is the faith that he is admonishing and or encouraging Timothy and Titus to pass on, to hold fast to. And in fact, in Timothy, our primary scripture this week is very short. It's just this, Timothy 2.1. This is his instruction, to, I'm sorry, Titus 2.1. This is instruction to Titus. He says, but as for you, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. If you have to sum up these two letters, this is probably it. Um, and we're going to look here, like we did last week, at a number of different passages in which Paul says something similar so we can really get sort of to the crux of the matter, kind of see the forest for the trees amidst all of the different instructions. Um, but this is what he says ultimately. And let's turn to some passages now. I'm, I'm just going to read through a couple. Um, you can see I actually have a bunch of them highlighted in my text. We're not going to read them all today, but a sample of them. Um, in 1 Timothy, he instructs Timothy, he says, remain in Ephesus. We've mentioned that Timothy was in Ephesus. So that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith. Some people have deviated from the truth and turned to meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. And later on, he says, I am giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience by rejecting conscience. Certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Without any doubt, the mystery of our religion is great. He, Jesus, was revealed in flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles, believed, believed in throughout the world, and taken up in glory. And then he says, until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of scriptures, to exhorting, to teaching, do not neglect the gifts that is, gift that is in you, which is given to you through prophecy and the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Put these things into practice, devote yourself to them, so that all may see, so that all may see your progress. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Continue in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then in the second letter, it says, "Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me, in the faith and and love that are in Jesus Christ. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us." There are more in Titus. We get what we read today. But as for you, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. And then later on, he says, he's a little even more uh, 
pointed than I uh, had suggested. He says, but avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable and worthless. That's probably only not even half of what we could have read to sort of drive home the point and, and pull out what Paul is trying to tell Timothy and Titus. And that is, is what? What do you take from that? Yes. You don't have to raise, we don't have to raise hands here. You can just speak. <laughs> exactly. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And ironically, when you read these letters, you can lose that, right? It gets lost sometimes in Paul's instructions about women in church or qualification for elders and deacons and some of the logistics that Paul is putting out there. But we need to remember that all of those logistics serve the greater and larger purpose that Paul repeats over and over and over, which is exactly that. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Make sure your doctrine, which is a big word, and most of you probably, your eyes kind of like roll back in your head when I say that word. Um, it is the core fundamental principles, the foundation of the faith. Make sure that stays pure. And if you think back to the many letters that we've writ, read that Paul has written, time and time again, Paul is calling his churches back to the faith that they were given. The gospel, the core central message of Jesus Christ uh, died, resurrected, so that we all may be saved, ascended, enthroned. That was the gospel that Paul received from Jesus and then gave to his churches and to the early church and his followers. And so to Timothy and Titus, he leaves this message, which is essentially, make sure you teach what is sound, right? In fact, it says right there, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. Make sure you maintain the integrity and the truth of the message. Don't let philosophies from the world seep in don't let cultural practices seep in and taint the way in which we are to, to act with one another, love the world, love each other. Make sure you keep the message pure. And so for us, as we turn to these letters and we hear this focus by Paul on sound doctrine, we, our charge is in some ways twofold. Because in one way, we are the recipient of that, right? And so the, the warning to us or the encouragement to us is make sure Make sure that you're listening to people who know that to begin with. That's a bigger struggle probably than we want to think that it is. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. But the other side of that is to put ourselves in Timothy and Titus's shoes to make sure the thing that we are then saying to the world, to each other, to those who we disciple is sound, is true, is in keeping with the ancient historic faith that was handed down from the apostles and Paul to the early church through Timothy, Titus, and others, generation after generation. Make sure that what you believe and what you're saying is the truth. There are plenty of warnings in our scripture to those of us who would stand up and claim to speak truth, but fail to. That we go off in theological ways or tangents or trains of thought that seem reasonable and rational to us and we might be convinced of, but in ultimate, in ultimate reality are false. And so there's, there's, that, is, that doesn't end well for those of us who would stand up and speak for God, but to do so falsely as bearing false witness. And it is warned against. Um, and so today I'm going to spend a little bit of time um, talking a little bit about this sort of historic nature of the church uh, like I said, we're going to get into a little bit of history. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the identity of Emmanuel as a church and sort of where we come from 
how we stand or don't stand in this pattern and process of discipleship. That's ultimately what we're talking about here. And what Paul is instructing Timothy and Titus to do is to be, be disciples, maintain discipleship, make sure that one generation after the next generation, the message, the gospel is passed through the process of discipleship and done so with integrity, honesty, and truth. So that as we sit here 2000 years later, we can be assured that the message that we have, the gospel that we have been given is the true gospel that was passed on from those early church fathers and mothers. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of apostolic succession. Does anybody know what that term means? Yeah. 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 And so those things are definitely working together. The point is what you said. The whole purpose of why we would care about something called apostolic succession is that we are entrusting from one generation to other men and women, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Paul spoke, the gospel of Jesus of and about Jesus, that it passes from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And Mike's right. There are, um, particularly in the Catholic tradition, you have a, like a, basically a big family tree of priests and popes, cardinals. They all can trace their lineage back up through the one who taught them, the one who taught them, the one that came before them, all the way back up to Peter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And so, and that is the discipleship process that as a disciple, that's kind of why I said our challenge is twofold, right? We receive, but then we must also turn around and teach, right? If, if, if it doesn't go beyond us, well, then the tree, the tree ends, discipleship stops, the train runs off the tracks, right? It's, it's over. And so it's important that from one generation to the next, what's important is that from one generation to the next, it remains pure. That's Paul's point in his letters is that don't, don't let these sort of vain and, and irrelevant uh, controversies and theologies creep in and muddle the conversation. Um, and unfortunately, we live in a world in which that happens all the time um, and has happened all the time. I would recommend to all of you and encourage you uh, that I'm not the only, I hope this is true, that I'm not the only person that you're listening to. Um, I encourage you to go out and find other pastors and other uh, teachers across the church to listen to who disagree with me, who will say something else, um, because it is in engaging in those conversations and those debates that we learn. And there are multiple ways to see things. There's this tradition in Judaism um, of treating scripture as a, as a, I think it's, they call it like a 70 face stone that you hold up one scripture and you can turn it around and see it from different perspectives. And it means different things. Um, in fact, there's one rabbi recently who, who wrote a book and it's seven chapters on the same scripture and every one leads to a different conclusion depending on where you see it from. Um, and we need to sort of be honest about the fact that a lot of scripture is, is exactly that, that way, that you can see it in different lights and it uh, apply, even in your own life, one scripture means one thing today and in five years as you've gone through different uh, experiences, you see it in another light and you feel like it is telling you something different. This is the beauty of having a text that is alive, that it can mean different things to different people. Um, but the, the challenge is to not allow improper or extraneous or distracting or uh, detrimental views and theologies to creep into the church that take it in a way that it ought not to go. So there's some, uh, there's, there's some latitude within the history of the church to, it's why we have so many churches, right? People see things differently and that's perfectly okay. 
But what Paul cares about is the core, the core central doctrines of the church that make up the faith, which we would say are sort of the essentials, right? Um, and so we have sort of secondary and tertiary theology, which we divide over and make it sometimes difficult to come in and worship together because we do it in different ways. Those are all sort of ancillary, not unimportant, but not crucial doctrines. And so what we care about is really what are these really closed, what we call close-handed doctrines, things that we hold tightly to. These are the things that we say, okay, you got, you got to believe this to be a Christian, right? We can have differing understandings of the Eucharist and what happens um, when we take the elements, right? There are different theologies about what's going on there. What matters to be a Christian is that you understand that it represents the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that somehow God's working through that moment. Exactly how is where we get into debates and, and unfortunately divisions in the church. I've mentioned before that we have, we ought to have a, a view of the church in terms of thinking about who's in and out. That is what we call a, uh, a centered set rather than a bounded set. You remember these conversations? A bounded set is just a list of beliefs that you have to check off. And if you check all, off all these boxes, you're in. And if you don't, you're out. Um, that's, a, that's the way a lot of us have been brought up to think about the church. Uh, and I propose that we think of it more as a centered set. And this allows me to be over here on this end of the spectrum, moving towards Jesus in the middle. And you're over here on this end of the spectrum, moving towards Jesus in the middle. And so we can come from different world worldviews. We can have different perspectives. We can actually have different beliefs about what it means to be a Christian in the world. But if we both move towards Jesus and have as our center and are becoming more like Jesus, as we move to Jesus, we actually become more like, and we, we hopefully become more like Jesus. That's the point, right? Right? So that allows for some, some degree of freedom. Right? It allows us to be different, in some ways to be wrong. I'm sure, I mean, we can't both be right on everything. Right? So somebody's going to be wrong, but that's okay. The point is we're all circling around and have at the center of our life Jesus. That's what makes us a church, that we care and are living towards Jesus. What we're talking about today and what Paul cares about is what is said about Jesus. What is that core? All right, so what is that thing in the middle around which all, we all circle that defines us as Christian? Because there are others who say they follow Jesus, but their picture of Jesus is unbiblical, is outside the historic ancient faith. All right? And so just because you claim the name Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you actually know what that means. And so what Paul is encouraging Timothy, instructing Timothy and Titus to do is to make sure that everyone who claims the name of Jesus understands what that means. So that, that core central doctrine, those core central doctrines about Jesus and about God that sit at the center, that define who that is and what that is and what that life looks like, those never get tainted. Okay? And so that's, that's their goal. So this idea of apostolic succession is important because in some way it doesn't guarantee that everyone who sits in that line has the right thought. Certainly people go astray. Uh, and, and the church has gone astray at times. Um, but... It is, it's helpful. If we're looking at teachers, pastors, church leaders who are just out on their own, who don't have formal training, who haven't been trained in some line of succession, it doesn't mean that God can't work through them. It doesn't mean that they don't know what truth is necessarily, but your, our radar should go up. And so when I say to you, go find other teachers and listen to them, it comes with a warning and that is, beware who it is you're listening to. All right? it, it is helpful to know that whoever it is you're listening to has been discipled. 
one of the reasons that institutional churches are helpful, and believe me, I am very suspect of and suspicious of much of institutionality in the church because it can become about the institution rather than the gospel very quickly. But one of the things that it does that's very helpful is it provides the training. It, it has a, we in the, in the States, well, all across the world actually have seminary systems in which supposedly and hopefully and assuredly, um, assumedly, this message is being instilled in all those who sit under the discipleship of theologians and church leaders who have themselves gone through that process. There's a process in just about every church, established church of ordination in which you, you study, you are examined, you go through panels, people grill you on your theology, on your understanding, on your belief, so that when you come out of that and you are put up on a stage like this, there's some credibility that comes with you and some assurance that the thing that you're going to say is in fact in line with what Paul is telling Timothy and Titus here. And the trouble we can get into is we have, especially right now, this cult of celebrity around church leadership. And we have a number of nationally recognized, very famous people who lead churches and they have no theological training whatsoever. They felt a call to lead a church. They went into their closet. They started reading their Bible and they came out and they started talking. Now, does that mean God can't use them? I'm not saying that that's not the case. God is God. The spirit is the spirit and he can lead those people. But what I can tell you is there are many of those people who say things that are just flatly wrong, that verge on heresy. And there's much concern in the church that is historic and ancient and rooted in that lineage about the things that get said in churches like that. All right. So be on your guard and just have your ears open as you are listening to people, all people who would purport to speak for God, of course, but certainly those who just felt the call to lead a church. I actually was that person 15, 20 years ago. I felt a call to lead a church, to plant a church here in Zanesville for a demographic of people who were not finding a home in other churches for very reasons. They, various reasons. They either uh, were, a, you know, de-churched because they had a terrible experience in church. Someone had been abusive towards them or disrespectful towards them to the point where they could no longer be in a church or people who were just outside the church who looked at the church and just saw condemnation. I thought, we've got to, play, we've got to create a place for them, right? And I could have very easily stood up and said, okay, I'm just starting a church. Come on, guys, we're going to be a church. But being aware of this problem we partnered with a historic denomination that had that system that could keep us in check because I look around even in our city and listen to things that are said in other churches and think, whoa, like it goes bad real quick. It can go bad real quick, right? When you got a lone wolf trying to interpret scripture without any sort of people around him or her to rein them in and direct and ensure as Paul directs Timothy and Titus that the main thing is kept the main thing, it gets lost. And so what I say to you is beware of those you listen to. Be aware of those you listen to. Ask, just, yeah, one second, Kathy. Ask the question, who, who are they? Where did they come from? Right? And test everything they say against scripture. Yeah, Kathy. And, and that has happened and does happen. It continues to happen. I mean, there are some of the biggest names you know in the church are not actually in the church. I'm not going to name names today from, from this pulpit, but 
if you have questions, ask me. We can have that conversation, especially if you think you might be listening to one of them. Um, and the other thing is, those, those of us who've been through a training and, and have some formal understanding and education, I just will be very honest with you. There are people I disagree with. That doesn't make them unqualified. It doesn't make them necessarily wrong. We disagree on some ancillary theological issues, but that's fine. They are still firmly rooted in the historic faith. They are still Christian, right? And, and I think any good pastor or teacher or church leader with their salt will acknowledge that. It's why we have so many denominations in this world. It's why we have so many splits. What I want to do for just a minute is uh, take you through kind of a very, very brief history of the church and some of its splits so that we understand who we are and where we come from as we sit here today in 2021 as Emmanuel Church. So we've talked before about the early church and the fact that as that, those churches were planted by Paul and others, they cropped up in different areas. And in every area, there was a bishop who was sort of the leader of that church. And for the first few hundred years, that was the authority in, in the region. And when there were problems or issues that were coming up in a larger church, all of the bishops would gather. There'd be a council of bishops and they would debate the issues. They would pray about it. They would discern what the answer was. And then the council of bishops would speak for the church about what, church, what the faith said. And here I'm using the term, as Paul does, the faith. So the Orthodox Christian understanding of who Jesus is, who God is, and what this whole thing is about. As the church became the official religion of Rome, it naturally became the fact that the, 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 uh, the bishop in Rome, since he was at the seat of political power, also became the most influential pope, or bishop about said pope because eventually he does become the pope. And so that one bishop comes elevated because of his proximity to uh, political power and becomes the most influential and becomes the pope. And then the church is under the pope's now leadership, uh, but still has uh, meetings of uh, the bishops. Most of the decisions are, are decided by councils, not by the pope himself. The idea of, sort of papal infallibility and he's the be all end all it comes later. Uh, and so for about 700 years from the 300s to about 1,000, the church existed sort of as a unified church under the leadership of the bishops and ultimately the Pope in Rome or the, the, the Bishop of Rome at that point. In 1054, there's a split for both theological and political reasons. And this is where we get this. It's called the Great Schism. It's where the Eastern Church breaks from the Western Church. So the Byzantine, which is modern-day Turkey Church, around Judea, and it's the Greek-speaking church, disagrees with the West, Western church, and they go their own way. So if you've heard of Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, uh, the Orthodox church, that is the Eastern branch of the church, um, which in 1054, they broke communion with one another, uh, largely for political reasons. Unfortunately, that's a lot of times how it happens, or has happened. Um, and they sort of have gone their separate ways. So if there's a main church for the first thousand years, it then breaks into these two main trunks. And then the Eastern Orthodox Church has its own splintering and breaks just like we do. So for the next few hundred years, things are going okay. We get to go through the, what we know as the medieval ages. Um, things become uh, sort of darker and darker for the church. Unfortunately, what we're talking about here, keeping the main things, the main thing gets lost in the midst of, all the chaos that is happening in the world. At that point, there are really no nation states. Um, what we're getting ready to talk to takes place in what we now know as Germany, but it wasn't a state. It was just a 
mix of towns and provinces and this prince rules this area. And it was really kind of the wild west. Um, and the church had lost its way and uh, was abusing and extorting and taking advantage of the common people. Uh, Pope Leo, uh, he was not a good guy. He came to the head of the church and his primary focus was building cool things. He wanted the church to look powerful and look pretty. And so he was levying taxes and all sorts of charges against his churches. And he kicked back up, which something that had been in place before, but this was indulgences. If you ever heard of these, this is where you can literally pay for a piece of paper that says you get out of purgatory and you can go to heaven when you die. And you can actually buy them for your relatives who already died. Presumably they're in purgatory waiting for the day when they can enter into heaven through their process of purgation. And you could buy this piece of paper to get them out. Um, and it was just a, a terrible abuse of authority and power in the church. Um, there were a number of decisions that were made that prompted uh, the, uh, one of the parts of the church in Germany to send a delegation to Rome to lobby for reform. Martin Luther happened to be the, one of the people that went. When he went to Rome, he saw cardinals and priests sit around, sitting around laughing at their congregants talking about how stupid they are for paying all this money, uh, just laughing at the fact that they were taking advantage of the church people, uh, these poor peasants who bring everything they have, presumably to offer to God, and here they are just partying it up and, and abusing their roles and their privileges. It's so bad, in fact, that as Luther leaves and goes back to Germany, he declares publicly that Rome is a harlot. Right? Rome has, at this point, completely lost the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy and to Titus to keep the main thing, the main thing. And over the next year or two, that sort of fire burns in Luther to the point that on October 31st in 1517, I think. Yeah, 17, got the date right. Uh, which is All Saints Day. It's now what we celebrate as Halloween. All Saints Day was a, was a, was a feast. And so much like on Passover, the Jews came to Jerusalem uh, in the town of Wittenberg was one of the central areas. It's where Luther was... Uh, he was a priest and he was a teacher in a seminary at that time. Uh, there were people that would gather for this feast. And so he, this is the moment when he walks down through the town square and on the church door at Wittenberg nails his 95 theses, which were 95 points and issues that he had with the Catholic church and the abuses that were going on. And it took a little while for that to gain steam, but it did. And it sparked what we, we know as the Protestant Reformation. And this is the next big break in the church. It, it broke off into what we know as the Lutheran church after Martin Luther. At that same time, there were other reformers who were thinking through things critically, and this was an opportunity for them to reevaluate things. And uh, there was another guy named John Calvin, who a lot of you are familiar with. Calvinism comes from him, the five points of Calvinism tulip. Um, anyway, he and his so cohorts disagreed with some of what Luther was saying. Here again, we're into secondary and tertiary issues. They agreed that the church needed to be reformed, and, and they started what was, we know as the Reformed Church. So at that time, there's a Lutheran church, there's a Reformed church, and they are the primary sort of thrusts or trunks of the Protestant Reformation. Um, they did not agree. They did not always get along, and because of some of their disagreements, uh, it, it made it difficult for them to be in church together, but they still recognized that we're all Christians, right? And so this goes back to the idea that we can disagree about things, you know, the Trinity across the street as a Lutheran church is not going to come in and do communion with us because of the theological differences. 
but we're still Christians. We're still brothers and sisters. Um, that's another conversation probably for another day exactly, as, as to exactly why that's the case. Um, but uh, that, that becomes sort of the main thrust of certainly the Eastern and sort of Northern European, for you it's Eastern and Northern European, break during the Protestant Reformation. A few years later in the 1530s, England breaks, and it breaks because the king wants to have a divorce and the Pope won't give it, won't grant it. So he says, fine, I'm out of here. And it breaks off as the Church of England and becomes sort of like the third leg of the Protestant Reformation. There's some discussion as to whether or not they're truly uh, Protestant because they did not break in the same way that Luther and Calvin did. But suffice to say, they break from the uh, church in Rome and become the Church of England. And so if you've heard of the Anglican Church, that's the term for the Church of England. Um, the Episcopal Church is, is Anglican. Uh, there's the Anglican Church in North America. So we have a number of branches of the Anglican Church, which was the Church of England, and it comes from that break. Um, I'll stop there in terms of church history. And obviously from that point, it breaks out into all sorts of different churches. Reformed churches become Presbyterian, Presbyterians, they're Baptists, there are lots of different churches. The Reformed Church in America, um, Lutherans by and large remain Lutheran. We have a couple of Lutheran churches here in town. Um, and the Church of England becomes all sorts of things, uh, especially as Wesley comes over here and founds churches here, and then the U.S. breaks from England. All of the churches that were in this country that were tied to the Church of England necessarily break from the Church of England. So we'll get into a little bit of that here in a minute. So I just want you to be aware of those three strains of church and sort of the his history of that, because all three of them are part of our, our story. Um, as I was going through this, um, I was kind of surprised going back through the history here. We are right now today, part of what's known as the four C's church. Before that, uh, a few years ago, this was a UCC church and the UCC church came to be because two churches merged. And one of them was the reformed church in America. And, in our history back in the, in the 1840s, this church has been here since 1818. So we are very, we are the historic church in town. There's one other church in town that's a couple years older, it's the Presbyterian church. Um, that congregation is older. We have been here in this spot since our founding. They moved, so we're more historic. We get them, right? Um, so one of, one of the two oldest churches and we as a congregation have in, are, inherit 200 years of God's people in this building, in this place. It was originally a wood, wood structure. It was built, this stone structure. Jim told me after the first, cent, first uh, service that he, he thinks this might be one of, if not the oldest building in Zanesville. So there's lots of history here. But as I was going back to that history, I found that the, one of the first names of this church was the United Evangelical Lutheran and Reformed Peace Church. Mike's laughing. Why are you Mike? laughing, Mike? Well, it's, it's a name. That's, that's a name, especially when you read it's Lutheran and Reformed. So think back to what happens when Luther breaks and Calvin breaks and they don't get along. And I'm, I, I just read that. I'm like, how did that work? Because those are two different branches of the church that don't, don't agree. And the problem is it didn't work because in 1842, this church drafted a new constitution that would have aligned it with, and it would have joined the German Lutheran synod it came to a vote in this church and it was rejected. And the people who wanted to be Lutheran walked out the door and across the street. And that's what Trinity came from. 
So those who wanted to be Lutheran left and were Lutheran. And so I have come in over the last year and been told, we have a Lutheran heritage. Well, we kind of do, but we, we send them across the street, right? So this church's heritage is probably more accurately reformed than it was Lutheran, but it is some weird mix in which in 1818, when we needed to found a church, everybody was Christian and we came together and we met one group and we worshiped our God and we had theological differences and it was okay. And what you realize in those situations is these ancillary and tertiary issues are just that because ultimately we all share in common what Paul has instructed to Timothy and Titus to make sure it gets passed down. We've all inherited that and that's what binds us together. So this church has a long history of Lutheran and reformed influence. What most people in this church who have grown up in this church probably don't know is they have quite a bit of church of England influence as well, because some of you will know this name is Earhart. What was his first name? John Earhart. He's the most beloved pastor ever to serve here, right? All of us who follow him have big shoes to fill. Uh, there's stained glass in the fellowship hall in his memory. Uh, he, was, he was a wonderful man, I'm told, um, and cared for this church well. He was a Methodist pastor. He came out of the Methodist system. He was a licensed local pastor. He came here. When did he start here? Do you know? So in 97. So we're going on 30 years ago. He came here. Uh, as an interim, and then was made the, the full-time pastor. And then came Mitch Reed after me. He was trained at Asbury Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, which is a Wesleyan seminary. Wesley was Charles Wesley and his brother John. Uh, John Wesley, sorry. He's, Charles is the hymn writer. John is the church founder. Um, John was a clergy member of the Church of England. The Methodist movement started in England when John much in line with Paul's instruction, was trying to find ways to make the main thing the main thing again and to bring the Church of England back to the true gospel. And so he started these, uh, what he calls societies and classes. They're small groups in which he every day got together with them. They read scripture. They asked each other, how is it with your soul? They got back to the heart and the root of the, the, the faith and they developed methods by which to do that. And so they became sort of tongue-in-cheek called Methodists but they would have their class or small group meeting and they would walk across to the church of England and they have communion with the rest of the church. They were part of the church of England. John comes here, founds all sorts of churches. When the American revolution happens, it breaks off and becomes the Methodist Episcopal church in America. And that later merges and becomes the UMC. And there are lots of other Wesleyan churches, but all that to say, John Earhart comes out of the UMC. Mitch Reed was trained and brought up and schooled in a Methodist Wesleyan seminary. I am from a Methodist church trained in a Methodist seminary. So for 30 years, you've been under leadership and continue to be under leadership that's influenced by the Wesleyan tradition coming out of the church of England. So if I, tra- if I, if you ask me, what's my apostolic succession, I don't have a list of names. I'm not going that far, but what I can say is I stand in the Wesleyan tradition, which has inherited the church of England tradition, which tr- connects directly to the church the historic church and the core, the DNA has been passed through all of those variations downstream through all of these splits. The main thing remains the main thing. And so as we think about ourselves as a manual, we are thoroughly Protestant. <laughs> the one thing we probably don't have uh, is Catholic. I joked in the first service, uh, Lutheran is referred to as Catholic light. Right? And part of that is because Luther was not reforming theology. He was trying to reform 
the practices of the church and the way in which it thought about it. So the Lutheran church retains much of the way the Catholic church does church and a lot of its theology. So we do actually have probably quite a bit of Catholic in us, um, but every church necessarily does because we all come from that split. And you know, for the first 1,500 years, it was one church, at least the Western side of it. So Catholic history is necessarily our history, right? It is the church history. Um, and so we sit here now as Emmanuel downtown church, a four seas church, but with a long heritage in this spot for 200 years, but sitting firmly in the history of the church that has been going on for 2000 years. And so we have inherited that, right? I spent the week, some of you may have seen some posts go up on Facebook and Instagram poking around. I had to go up. Uh, we, we put up a second camera for the live stream and I had to run some things. So I ended up up in the bell tower. And, you know, if you haven't ever been up there, go up there. It's amazing. The bells, you know, they're real. A lot of churches don't have real bells, though. we do. They're this big. They're huge. If they ever fall, they're not stopping until they hit the basement. They're coming, I mean, they're massive things. They're just, it's all inspiring to look at. And it is, in some ways, all inspiring to stand here and think we, we are, in some ways, the mother church for Zanesville. It, it started here and with the Presbyterian church. This is where Zanesville's church started. And it has broken off and gone in all sorts of other directions, and there are many more. But we sit today in, in one of the two most historic churches in town. We have inherited that legacy. But more importantly, we have inherited the legacy that Paul instilled in Timothy and Titus and on and on and on. And so as people who claim that heritage, who sit in this room, uh, I, I can, you know, a lot of times I can be pushing in sort of modern directions in ways that you know, we have this service, you all are coming here, so you like it, but there are others that don't, and they come to a traditional service and there can be some tension sometimes, you know, are we changing the way we are? Are we changing who we are? Um, but what we always need to remember is that, no, absolutely not. It may look different. This service has different music than the other service does. But the core of who we are is the core of who we are. The church is the church. And we, whether or not we listen to an organ in the first service or guitars and drums in the second service, we sit in that line of succession as Christians. I sit in that line of succession as one of the leaders of this church. My charge, our charge, is to heed the, the instruction of Paul to Timothy to hold fast to the core, hold fast to the ancient historic faith. Who and what is Jesus? And we forsake everything else to make sure that that stays pure. That we, as the inheritors of that truth, have responsibility to pass that on. And so when I, almost every week, as I do, encourage you to get up and go out through your week and talk to others, to love on others. You are presumably and hopefully living out tangibly that truth. And at some point, hopefully, there comes a time when you can speak that truth to those around you. But as Paul says to these two young men, I would say to you, make sure it's the truth. Right? And this then begs a really big question. Do you know the truth? If I, well, I do. I stand here today and I ask you, do you know what that core is? 
And this is when we say the word doctrine and most people go, oh, right? But it's really important. Do you know what identifies you as a Christian? Do you know what those core beliefs are that Jesus gave to Paul, Paul gave to Timothy, Timothy gave to his church, and have been passed down and passed down and passed down? The unfortunate reality is I would wager to bet most of us don't. Not really. Because particularly the Western American church, we've gotten away from it. We don't want to hear sermons about doctrine and Athanasius and the church fathers and the early debates that were going on. Flashy shows and lights and rock songs and music are much more attractive than heady sermons and discussions about the core of the faith. But if we don't do that, if we don't know that, what are we doing? We have to be grounded on the foundation of the core doctrines and historic faith of the church. I mentioned we're at the end of our New Testament series, which has gone on for a while, right? We've been at this for a while. Next week, we're going to look at Romans. I don't, part of me doesn't even want to bother trying to talk about Romans in a week. Uh, it is such a massive book and deals with so much, but we're going to do, as we have done, a sort of a higher review. But then we're going to be done with the New Testament. After that, we're starting a, a series on doctrine. So we're going to go back to the very beginning of the church. We're going to look at the Apostles' Creed. We're going to look at the early fathers. We're going to look at and tease out what is this thing that Paul is so adamant about as he writes to Timothy and Titus that they instill into the church. So that when in a few weeks we get done with that, and I look at you and I say, what is the core of the faith? What does it mean to be a Christian? You all have an answer for that. That I have an answer for that. And a good one, an historic one. One that we know has been and is rooted in the transmission of the gospel from generation to generation to generation. At the end of the day, we're all staking our eternal futures on this. But most of us will, would struggle to come up with what that is. And so I can think of no greater job that I have as one who stands up here teaching than to make sure that you know that. To make sure that as followers of Jesus, as the inheritors of the church, of the faith, we know what that faith really is. And so that's where we're going next. I would encourage you to be present for those. I would say, if you know people that have any interest in church at all, this is a good time. Hey, if you want to know what the church is about, what Christianity is about, this is going to be a series of weeks that that's going to come to light. Um, and I think you're going to be surprised. I've, I know I, I was and have been and still am at sometimes when you read some of the things these early church fathers said and as, as sort of core to the faith, I think you're going to be shocked, one, at some of the things they do say, and you're going to be really surprised at a lot of things they don't say. Because a lot of what we are so hung up on in the modern church isn't really that big of a deal. At least it's not enough to kick somebody out of the church over. Um, and so we're going to have those conversations. Some of them will be difficult. Some of them may step on toes. But that's the job. As one who stands up here, who's been appointed to lead, to teach, to step into the same shoes that Timothy and Titus had, it's my job to make sure that you understand, that we understand as a church, what is the faith. And so that's where we're going.
I would encourage you all to uh, think deeply about your own understanding and your knowledge. Be prepared to question what you've inherited. Not, we don't question just a question, but to confirm and make sure that you are on footage with your faith, your belief, and your understanding. Let's pray and spend some time in worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for all of your servants throughout time, through the last 2,000 years of our church, of your family, that all flows from your son and his work, his death, his resurrection, his enthronement. Thank you for the faithful followers, men and women throughout the years who have stood firm and stood up, who have caused trouble, who have suffered for ensuring that this church remained true to who Jesus is and who we are called to be. We ask in the coming weeks as we begin to peel layers back and look at what that initial message was, what those core doctrines are that you would open our hearts and our minds and grant us true understanding that we might come to be fully founded and grounded upon your truth, that we might understand and inherit the true gospel, the very words that you have for this world, and that we then might be compelled to carry that message throughout our lives every day to the world around us. As we come to this moment of time of worship, Lord, we ask that you would draw us near to you, that you would hear our praise, that you would make us worthy to speak your name. As we prayed initially and mentioned, we are so often and too easily in a position that we take for granted your love. We take for granted who you are and the fact that you have called us to be with you. So we ask that you would remind us, fill us once again with awe and wonder of who you are, with awe and wonder at the church that you have founded, you've created, that you have called us into, and that you have entrusted to us to carry to the world. Hear our praises now. We ask all this in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Amen.